From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Today, we are so glad that you have chosen to join us this afternoon. Reminder that the website for this show and all shows is TonyPerkins.com. You can also uh, find Tony on Gab at, at Tony underscore Perkins. Today is a special day. This is a special week for the Family Research Council. Uh, because we have a special opportunity uh, for those of you who support the important work of FRC. And what you can do is you can have every contribution to defend faith, family, and freedom quadrupled for the next three days. There's a $1 million challenge match. If you text MEDIA to 67742, that's MEDIA to 67742, have your contribution quadrupled today. Please do so. We have a great show for you. We're going to tell you how much money the Southern Poverty Law Center is hiding offshore. You can go ahead and, uh, you know, it's like how many balls are in the the, uh, the jug at the fair? How many balls, are, how much money does SPLC have in accounts offshore? We're going to talk about that a little bit later. We're also going to talk about um, how much money the Biden administration is trying to give back to Planned Parenthood that the Trump administration had taken from them. We will close the show uh, talking about the filibuster. What is it and why does it matter, especially right now? We'll talk to David Harsanyi about that. But first, we're going to start the show with one of the hottest topics in national news from the uh, Often overlooked, but not right now, state of South Dakota, Governor Kristi Noem has found herself um, in a bit of controversy because the state of South Dakota has been considering legislation to make sure that only girls will play sports on girls' sports teams and, on, and girls will be competing against other girls uh, in the state of South Dakota. She had previously promised to sign this. Well, the bill, wouldn't you know it, got to her desk and suddenly she appears to have gotten cold feet. Uh, to talk with us about this is Travis Weber, FRC's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs. Travis, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Well, give us your high-level assessment, maybe for those who are hearing about this issue for the first time right now. What's going on in South Dakota? Yeah, Joseph, I think, you know, this is a sad story. It's a sad story similar to what we've seen before. The dynamic of what has played out so far is not new, and that is a story of a politician, elected leader, who positions themselves as conservative and yet uh, buckles and caves in the face of pressure from the elites of society, from big business, from those in elite circles who uh, conservatives and Republicans uh, want to work with and when possible and want to, want to please sometimes. The sad story is, though, here the interests of the elites, the interests of corporations and big businesses are being put over the will of the voter, the will and and desires and interests of the average person. And in this case, the people of South Dakota um, are the ones who are suffering from that. But that is, you know, what's playing out before our eyes over uh, recent days 
as Governor Nome is buckling and backtracking on her pledge to support this uh, bill, which would protect women's sports in that state. Um, you know, that's really <laughs> that's the simple explanation. Yeah. That's what this boils down to. And it's it's just sad and unfortunate to see. Well, this is a, this is a confusing one for me as well, because, you know, we, we joke about politicians always doing kind of the politically safe thing. Now, she's the governor of South Dakota, right? This is not this is not New York. This isn't Florida. Um, this isn't a purple state. This is South Dakota. And I haven't seen the polling out of South Dakota on this issue, but my guess is that upwards of 80% of people in South Dakota, so upwards of 80% of Governor Nome's constituents, would be fully supportive of this legislation. Why isn't she just doing what I'm going to assume the supermajority of the people in her state want her to do? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? And, and looking at this on the face of things, you would say, well, Look, you know, Governor Nome has has uh, stood up uh, during the coronavirus uh, pandemic and um, defended freedom in her state. It makes it all the more tragic that she would buckle now. But the reality is, is that it's very likely that there are significant behind the scenes pressures from the NCAA, from business interests, Chamber of Commerce, from other corporations perhaps threatening to withdraw from the state if she moves on, significant pressure behind the scenes getting at her um, and leading her to take this very rather convoluted position that we see playing out where she's going on a media tour, holding a press conference, trying to position herself as defending women's sports by saying, you know, we need to make these style and form revisions, which, by the way, are very substantive revisions. They're not style and form revisions when you look at what the changes would do. But positioning herself as trying to defend yeah. um, women's sports and stand up to the NCAA when it's the exact opposite. This bill as written would protect women um, and would stand up to the NCAA. So by heeding the NCAA and making all these tweaks to the bill, um, you're actually caving to the NCAA, and that's the, that's the rather unfortunate optic of this that leads, the optic that proceeds and, and kind of paints the picture of what's happening here, um, yeah. you know, where we have uh, a conservative who's pledged to support a bill now backtracking, trying to position is still defending those uh, women who need protection right. due to um, the need to, you know, to, to want to position herself as a defender of social conservatives, when in actuality, I don't think many are being fooled at this point. She is throwing social conservatives under the bus. Well, you mentioned the media tour that she's on because she has been she's in damage control mode right now. And I want to play uh, a couple of clips from her. Um, and, and Bobby, if you can get clip number two ready there, because this is she's g given a couple separate um explanations for why she feels this is necessary that she's hoping to sell to her base. So let's go ahead and play uh, the first one. We did take action against the state of South Dakota. We could sue them. I know we could do that. But these respected legal scholars inform me we would likely lose at that level facing the court circumstances that we have in front of us. So we could pass a law, then we could get punished, then we could face expensive litigation at taxpayer expense, and then we could lose. We'd have nothing but a participation trophy to, be, to show for it. Or we could take a different path entirely. Well, Travis, she's sounds almost reasonable there. Why would we want to waste taxpayer dollars on some quixotic um, 
path that has no chance of succeeding. Is, is she correct there? What's she wrong about? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it, she's trying to have her cake and eat it too. I mean, this the explanation just doesn't make any sense. It's and it's trying to paper over, cover over, surrender and capitulation. You know, claiming she's she's noted, you know, and tried to claim she's relying on legal scholars. She's been working on this issue for years. Um, well, this is not the way we operate when you look at the political will to pass a bill. She actually called for on January 12th. Her state of the state address call for the legislature to pass a ban on abortions conducted because of Down syndrome diagnosis. These bills have been passed in other states, and they're being challenged in the courts. So that was her honest concern here. She wouldn't support that bill. In reality, this is the NCAA, and it's important that people understand the larger context here. This is not the first go-around for Governor Nome. Last year, last session, there was a bill moving in her state that would have protected minors from gender transition procedures. And she refused to support that. We tried to engage with her. We tried to, to reach out and work with Governor Nome on that bill, and it was silence. Refusal to engage, refusal to work with social conservatives. And, again, there was, in all likelihood, big business pressure that she's bowing down to and heeding here. Um, this, is the, this is the picture in the reality we're in. And you have other bills moving these uh, – other states moving these bills now, sports bills passed in – Mississippi and Tennessee. Mississippi governors signed theirs. Tennessee governor will likely sign theirs. Those states are leaving South Dakota behind, and those are the states protecting women's sports. Other bills are moving on the gender transition issue. So, I mean, even, you know, Governor Nome's own position not being followed by other governors who are standing up and, and, and states that are protecting um, the social conservative cause on these issues as the gender ideology seeks to make inroads around the country. And and good for them for good for those other other states and other governors for just moving forward and doing the right thing. You know, every every politician lives in their own universe, and and, and those of us who have been around the space for a while, what we come to understand is sometimes the thing they're trying to accomplish is not the thing that the public thinks they're trying to accomplish. So it's not necessarily about doing the right thing for for South Dakotans, um, and and doing what they want her to do. Um, she may have ambitions, and there are many indications that she does have ambitions. And oftentimes, politicians are making decisions not because of what's the best interest of the people they currently represent, but how's it going to play with the people I want to represent. And a lot of people govern today with the mind to a future to, that, w that would allow them to hopefully represent uh, people who aren't currently their constituents. So they're oftentimes thinking about things that are not currently relevant to them. But you've talked about the NCAA, and I want to go ahead and, Bobby, get clip number four there, if you could, because this is this is Governor Nome's other argument. She previously talked about, oh, the, the, we're going to lose in court if we do this. Now, he, here's the other explanation she gave for why she needed to change her mind. What it would do is it would put a law in the books that would allow the NCAA to take punitive action against our state. And we're a small state, Tucker. We've had to fight hard to get any tournaments to come to South Dakota. When they took punitive action against us, we would have to litigate. And legal scholars that I have been consulting with for many, many months say that I would very likely lose those litigation efforts. So that is Governor Nome, of course, on Tucker Carlson's show. Um, what do you think of that? With, uh, with, with the NCAA, are they just not going to come to South Dakota anymore, and is that going to bankrupt the state? Yeah, you know, Joseph, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but the reality is you, you, don't, you don't give in. You know, and, and this, 
this is way too clever by half. She's saying I've worked for months, you know, with scholars for years on these issues. Um, you know, within months, within the past month, she's pledged to sign this bill. So this is her trying to salvage her position. And as you noted before, pander to other constituencies besides South Dakotans. Um, it just doesn't hold up. You don't you don't only sign bills that you know for sure are going to hold up in court beyond, you know, beyond all doubt. You don't know that. But you sign bills and you support legislation that's the right public policy uh, for the state. And as we've noted, this issue is getting traction in other states. Other governors are standing up who are interacting, you know, like real conservatives in Mississippi and Tennessee. Arkansas, there's a bill moving to protect uh, minors from gender transition procedures being imposed on them. This bill, um, you know, is, is, is a great bill. It's getting traction in the state Senate. We're going to need the governor there to stand up and sign this bill, HB 1570 in Arkansas. The issue is not limited to South Dakota. It's playing out around the country, and unfortunately, Governor Nome is backtracking and not standing up for social conservatives when many others are around our country. Travis, we're going to continue to track this. Thanks for joining us uh, this afternoon and, and for sharing your time with us. And, Thank and you. folks, keep this in mind because the, the Governor Nome's problem, one of the challenges here is once there is blood in the water, once you sh- show signs of weakness, uh, you do not deter uh, future abuse. You incentivize it for sure. So if she gives in now and she in many ways already has she can expect more of this in the future now coming up on the other side of the break the southern poverty law center's most recent audited financial statements is out what's surprising stay tuned we'll talk about it after the break hey matt hey hannah what's going on why so gloomy well i'm a little disappointed i had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time and i just didn't do it oh yeah What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. 
To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it is my privilege to be sitting in for Tony Perkins today. The Southern Poverty Law Center's most recent audited financial statement revealed that the group had $162 million in a variety of offshore funds as of October 21st of 2020, which is unusual because similar nonprofits don't invest in non-U.S. funds. But of course, that's not the only thing a little off about the Southern Poverty Law Center. Once upon a time, SPLC served as a champion in the civil rights struggle, fighting against real injustice and real hate, like the KKK. The organization has since devolved and has recently found itself mired in its own accusations of, wouldn't you know, racism and sexual harassment against minority staff members. Joining me now to talk about how this latest report ties in with the Southern Poverty Law Center, we know today is General Jerry Boykin, FRC's Executive Vice President General. Welcome back to the program. Well, Joseph, it's good to be with you. Well, what's your reaction to this audit? Why should people be care what's going on with the Southern Poverty Law Center? Yeah, well, because uh, they need to understand that this is an arm of the extreme left in this country. I mean, they are at their core, at their roots. They are Marxist, and they're pushing what we see coming out of uh, much of the Democratic Party today, which is this uh, move towards Marxism. And uh, they are a very dangerous organization, as, as you are well aware uh, they motivated a guy back in 2012 through their hate mapping on their website to come into the family policy, I mean the family research council, and uh, and and shoot our building manager, and uh, and then he told the judge later he was there to kill as many of us as possible, and the guy uh, as he stood before the judge he said I was I found the uh, family research council listed as a uh, hate group. Uh, on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, and uh, and that's what motivated me to do this. Well, uh, we need to understand that that kind of hate mapping is, number one, illegitimate. They have no authority to do that. It, the only authority comes from when the, the, the media and the government uses that data that they put on there. But they are a very dangerous organization, and, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, 
people need to wake up and realize that they have not only are they an arm of the left, but they are also an organization that has been declared by their own people to be both racist and sexist. Which is it's it's a shocking accusation against somebody who, you know, who stands against allegedly racism. The name is almost ironic as well, since they're the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm going to read you some stats from this audit. Um, in the year 2020, they took in $108 million. Their assets, their net assets as an organization, are now up to $588 million, which is a $45 million increase in, in one year alone. Why do they need so much money, and why do people keep giving them this money if clearly they're just putting it in the bank? Yeah, if you look at uh, the history of Morris Dees, who was the founder of this, uh, in 1971, I believe, Morris Dees made millions of dollars with direct mail. And again, this is back in the 60s and the 70s, made millions of dollars. Morris Dees has been focused on money, and they have been raising tons of money, much of which is coming from people uh, that are not uh, really are not in the upper echelons of the economic strata. And uh, we're talking about a lot of people that are of uh, very medial incomes, you know, and uh, Morris Dees has a history of raising lots of money. So what are they doing with all of that money? Well, certainly they're putting some in offshore accounts, but, you know, Joseph, they have, uh, based on, you know, their reports to the IRS, they have $588 million, $588 million. That is that is just beyond what I can comprehend as the vice president of a nonprofit organization. We, we spend the money for what we say we're going to spend it for, and they obviously put a good portion of it in offshore accounts. Well, it's, you know, in, in the nonprofit space, you hear people talk about the fact that nonprofit is a tax status and not, not an actual frame of mind. Um, and, and they clearly have taken that seriously because they are. Um, they are definitely interested in making a profit, $45 million in the last year alone. And remember what that year was, right? We just got through 2020. There are a lot of businesses yeah. who would have loved to have made $45 million that they could just sock away during 2020. But the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, was able to do so, was able to save that much money. Now, why is it that they continue to have influence with Big tech, there are, you know, we, we know about all these companies that basically take their recommendations and advice, Amazon for who they can, who can, who consumers can donate to. People really take them seriously and think they're credible. Why, despite their history, uh, their very recent history, um, not even very recent, just the last decade or so, um, why do people continue to work with them and give them credibility? Yeah, and that, that's what I was saying before. When the U.S. government uh, uses the data that they produce uh, on that uh, hate map, uh, then that gives them credibility. When the uh, big uh, media uh, uses their data, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map, uh, you know, mm -hmm. they are then given credibility by those two entities, and then that just it spreads. Now, the good news is that many organizations have actually awakened and don't use their data anymore, but it hasn't slowed down their money flow. 
but they don't use their data anymore. And we've actually had members of Congress that have stood up and, and called them out for just exactly what they are, an extreme left organization, an arm of the left. And uh, so it's that credibility that they get from the government. I think the government, for the most part now, has stopped using right. any of that data. Well, in general, to your point, uh, tomorrow, the Southern Poverty Law Center's chief of staff will be an expert witness at a House hearing on extremism in the armed forces. I think we can know what to expect uh, there at that hearing, can't we? In general, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your service to our country, uh, past, present and future. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joseph. Coming up after the break, the Biden administration is now trying to get more money to Planned Parenthood, as is evidence from a new announcement made just last week from HHS. What was the announcement? What does it mean? We'll talk about it after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Want to remind you about a special opportunity to join our Stand Today Together campaign and quadruple your impact for faith, family, and freedom. Join us as we stand against the cancel culture's attacks on our freedoms and rights. Text media to 67742 to donate and have all your contributions quadrupled. Again, text media to 67742. 
Now, the Department of Health and Human Services plans to give back the loophole that Planned Parenthood had been using to receive federal funding by erasing changes made in 2019 by the Trump administration to a Title X family planning program. After having been directed by President Biden late January to review the changes, HHS announced last week that it would propose revised regulations substantively similar to those issued in 2000. What does this mean and what does it mean for Planned Parenthood? With me now to discuss this is Valerie Huber, former U.S. Special Representative for Global Women's Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Valerie, welcome back to the program. So good to be with you. This is sad news indeed. It is. And, and, and tell us what makes it sad to you. Well, I worked uh, a long time on revising the, the Title X rule uh, under the Trump administration with some of my colleagues. And for the first time, we had a regulation implemented across the country in this 50-year program where there was a requirement that there be a physical separation between the Title X Family Planning Services and a location where abortion is provided. And for the first time ever in that 50-year history, Planned Parenthood self-selected out of that program because providing abortion was more important to them than providing women's health. That's an amazing admission, actually, isn't it? Because, I mean, they, they certainly care about money, but when given the choice, they chose to continue to provide abortion rather than provide all the other range of services. Is that inconsistent with their talking points? Well, I think it really reveals the true priority is, is abortion. You know, the, the talking point that they have given is that somehow HHS and the Trump administration made it impossible for them to continue caring for women. But the opposite was, in fact, the truth. They could have continued to provide family planning services, but they refused to separate those services from being in a location where they provide abortion. And they insisted on making abortion re- referrals, which really provided a pipeline then for, for their client base. Now, doesn't Planned Parenthood have some clinics where they don't perform abortions that would have still been eligible for Title X funding under that rule? That's such a, yeah, that is a, a very good point. And, in fact, one Planned Parenthood continued to be funded. However, Planned Parenthood Federation of America made it really clear as soon as we issued uh, the Title X regulation that all of their Planned Parenthoods were going to pull out of the Title X program, some of them, funded continuously for 50 years under this program because they were able to promote abortion, essentially, through a program where the statute expressly states that none of these funds are to be to be provided where abortion is a method of family planning. What was the impact to Planned Parenthood under that rule? Well, it's hard It's hard to know exactly from community to community, but anecdotally, I've heard from a number of communities where the Planned Parenthoods have actually shuttered. And what it means in their bottom line is that about $60 million a year that they were receiving annually um, left their coffers. But I think even more importantly than that are the, the millions of, of women 
who were receiving services who no longer did, but they were receiving also um, an addition to the Rolodex for Planned Parenthood for abortion services. Yeah. How long is it going to take? Well, actually, let me ask this question first. Um, did the, the Biden administration just simply reverse it? Is there some kind of rulemaking process they're going to go through? Have they indicated they're going to make the change, or has the change already been made? Well, no. This is a process, and the, the first part to this is um, a proposed rule, which is then published in the Federal Register. HHS identified um, that they are going to publish this proposed rule no later than April 15th. So this is lightning speed. I suspect they were already working on this rule even before uh, Biden was inaugurated. And it's really important that listeners make sure that when that proposed rule is published, that they make sure that they um, register their comments and their concerns because every one of those comments has to be addressed before a final rule comes out. Now, the Biden administration has also given us a timeline for that. They expect their final rule by early fall. So this is going to be very quick, and we need to pay attention. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for your time and bringing this to our attention. It is a concern, but it's also just more proof that elections really do matter, don't they? Indeed, they do. Valerie Huber, thank you so much for joining us. And stay with us. We're going to close the day talking about, it's actually a, it's a related issue, because we're going to talk about the filibuster and why changes like this would be more dramatic if the filibuster goes away. And is that what they're trying to do in the Senate? What does it mean? Why should you care? We're going to talk about all of that and a lot more. Get your filibuster education after the break with David Hersanyi. We will see you then. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. 
there is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. This reversal, Miss Presence, not, not about principle. It's just raw power. And that is the voice of Mitch McConnell talking in the Senate this morning about the potential revoking of the filibuster in the Senate. And with the Senate divided 50-50 between the two parties, a growing number of Democrats see the filibuster as the main obstacle to their next two big priorities, which are first passing H.R. 1, which is a tremendous threat to free and fair elections, as well as a multi-trillion dollar quote-unquote infrastructure plan, which they would use to address climate and equality, as well as roads. Though they've defended the filibuster in the past, Democrats are criticizing it now. They've made all sorts of claims, saying that it is racist, unconstitutional, and a, quote, death grip on American democracy. Is the filibuster what cr- critics are claiming it to be? Joining me now to talk about it is David Harsani, senior writer for National Review and author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. David, welcome to Washington Watch. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I know you've been thinking and and writing about this subject. What are your high-level thoughts about what's happening with the filibuster right now? I wouldn't call them high-level, but I'll I'll give you what I have. I think um, that the filibuster is an an imperative tool in in protecting the, the integrity of the Senate and the reason the Senate exists, which is not to act like the House and, and, you know, through majoritarian means and push through legislation that affects the entire country, especially when you have a narrow majority, when you have a bill like H.R. 1, which overturns probably thousands of election laws across the nation, you know, just to, destroys the integrity of, of elections in states that have different ways of doing things. Um, that kind of bill especially needs the filibuster. You should at least have 60 people, 60 senators voting for a bill that in my mind, is unconstitutional because states, uh, you know, should be running their own elections, as the Constitution says. So, I mean, I think the whole thing is just a power grab. Um, it's also the 
level of hypocrisy around this is just is just mind-boggling, frankly. Uh, you know, I think it was 30 Democrats that signed a letter um, defending the filibuster only a few years ago. They used it over 500 times since 2014, and now they call it a racist relic of, of Jim Crow. So, you know, people have to take take this argument for what it is and look at that history in context, I think. No, you're right about that. It is, it is humorous. And, and for those who have the chance to look up uh, Mitch McConnell's speech uh, this morning on the Senate floor, he did an amazing job kind of running through the history of a lot of the people who are the recent history of people who are on the Senate floor um, this morning or part of the Senate presently and how their tune changed immediately after last November when uh, they filibuster was no longer useful to them. But I'm David, I'm going to play a clip um, of part of that speech and his explanation of why he thinks uh, Mitch McConnell, why he thinks the filibuster matters as well as uh, Schumer's response to that. The 60 vote threshold is the reason why huge pillars of domestic policy don't oscillate back and forth every time a different party wins the majority. So let's think of something like the Mexico City policy. The executive branch policy about funding overseas abortions it has flipped back and forth every single time the White House has changed party since the 1980s. Republican presidents issue the memo, Democratic presidents retract it. The legislative filibuster is what keeps the entirety of federal law from working that way. We're not going to be diverted. We're not going to be deterred. We are going to go forward because we know the American people demand, need, want, all change. And we're going to do it. Mitch McConnell can do all the threatening and bluster he wants. It's not going to stop us. So, David, Chuck Schumer there after Senator McConnell. Um, do you agree with him that the American people want this? Is there evidence for this? Is this something that the American people are clamoring for, for the bold change that uh, Chuck Schumer is wanting to bring us? If the American people are clamoring it for it. Why can't you get 60 votes to do it? The reason you can't get 60 votes is because American people aren't clamoring for it. It's because you have a very narrow majority in the House and in the Senate, um, and that's why you need to do it. You need to ram through gigantic bills. Now, Democrats believe they'll kill the filibuster, pass what, 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 they, what they admit are huge trans, transformational bills that change policy in the United States, and that that won't be, you know, that the Republicans won't be able to overturn it or won't, you know, or, or won't, won't overturn it because they won't do it. Um, Mitch McConnell is exactly right about the seesawing policy. We see that we saw it especially with during the Obama years, where he used executive power to join the Paris Accords to do all kinds of things uh, unilaterally um, at the expense of the Constitution. And then Trump came, and then he overturned them, and now Biden's overturning them again. That's not a, a good way. It's not a stable way to govern. It's no way. It's banana republic stuff, frankly. And if you know, the problem is that Democrats are overreaching. And they want huge bills that really change the way America is run and control states and centralize power in Washington. And they can't, you know, the only way they can do that is by breaking the filibuster because, because there's a huge minority that doesn't want it right now. You know, I, the, the point that McConnell made there about kind of the, the seesaw effect, I've had that thought about executive orders, and we're kind of used to this. You know, you, you, when, when a Republican comes in, you can expect a certain slate of executive orders, and then a Democrat comes in, and he will uh, issue a bunch of different executive orders, reversing the prior, prior executive orders, and back and forth and back and forth. Is that really what the filibuster uh, was originally 
around to prevent? What was the history of it? Has it been here since the beginning? Because the filibuster, it does seem on one level anti-democratic, but what was the, the, the original intent behind a filibuster? I just want to say the American government governmental system is set up to be counter-majoritarian, undemocratic. It is not set up to have a majority rule and uh, force states to do anything, you know, that the, the fleeting majority wants. They could lose this majority in 2022. Um, the history does not go back to the beginning. It goes back, I believe, to the 1830s, and then it was used in the 1840s, and then it wasn't, it's, it wasn't used as, as often as it is now. We're a divided nation. It's used more now. And uh, there used to be a talking filibuster where someone would stand up. And we used to celebrate this in movies, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, etc., you know, where someone stands up and makes a stand and <laughs> keeps speaking. But I think it was Democrats, and this I might, I'm not 100% sure on this, stopped doing that uh, and had a silent filibuster available for senators because it shuts down all other business and they can't do anything. So that's when it became a silent filibuster. Democrats are talking about bringing back the talking filibuster to inflict pain on the Republicans, but that will just shut down the Senate. They won't be able to do anything. So I doubt they'll they'll move forward on that. Well, I, I think you make a good point that I want to dwell on there for a moment, this idea that um, we were not set up to be a democracy in a pure sense. We have democratic principles, but we were not designed to allow the majority to do whatever uh, we, we wanted, whatever it, whatever the majority wanted to do at a given moment. And, and why is that? Why, is, why were our founders so careful to prevent that kind of uh, back and forth uh, swings based on what a majority is looking for? Well, majority, at least this is my opinion, I don't speak for anyone else, but majoritarianism is, is, a, is a form of authoritarian rule. Just because 51% of people say don't like the First Amendment, that doesn't mean that the First Amendment is not a wonderful thing and that we should get rid of it. So um, the founders did, you know, they looked at history, they looked at different kind of governance, and they decided that the best way uh, to balance all these things out was to give people local control to federalism and through the 10th Amendment and to, 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 to preserve individual freedom in the Constitution um, and to have checks and balances along the way. You know, right. to cre- they, they, it, 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 it is ridiculous to believe, as Chuck Schumer says, that the founders would have been okay with the federal government with a one-vote majority overturning the, the laws of every small state and, and you know across the nation simply because they demand it, just because they have a majority. It's just not how uh, republicanism and, and, and liberty work. Well, and you make a good point, and, and uh, this was – I, I'm, I'm looking for the date here, but Senator Schumer and Durbin and 33 colleagues um, – they were very recently, very recently, Chuck Schumer was singing a, a very different tune with respect to the filibuster. And it is just so transparently political that this now is it's it's convenient for me to be to, to do away with the filibuster. But it wasn't. But paint us a picture of, you know, they, they did re, did away with some of the rules during uh, during the Obama administration with respect to judge appointments. And they came back, they, they, they came to regret that because it allowed President Trump to do something historic with respect to judicial nominations. Uh, look into the future a little bit in a scenario in which they are, are, are successfully able to get rid of the filibuster. What does that look like? What, what happens moving forward next time the Republicans are in power? 
Well, yeah, Harry Reid got rid of the judicial filibuster, and then Democrats, because they thought they would, uh, you know, they didn't think Donald Trump would win or, you know, et cetera, and they, they paid a heavy price for that with three Supreme Court justices, but, you know, tons and tons of other judges in lower courts. Um, well, I think that it would be that the Senate would no longer be very important. It would be something like the House. And you'd have huge pieces of legislation just being passed through party line votes. And I think initially that would hurt Democrats in the election because I don't think that's how America wants to be ruled, frankly. Um, you know, most citizens don't pay attention to every, you know, they don't think of a procedural uh, tool or parliamentary tool as very important, but they will when there's giant, you know, when HR1 passes and they find out what's in it. So I think that'll happen. And then Republicans, will be forced to act in kind because voters will demand it. And then you'll have, like McConnell said, legislate, you know, you'll have gun control legislation and then you'll have, you know, pro second amendment legislation going back and forth all the time. And that's just no way to run a country, frankly. It, it is amazing. When we think about things like Obamacare, kind of monumental pieces of legislation that happen that really make substantive changes in the way we operate as a country, and in many cases take years to implement the idea that that those major reforms would then be revoked again just because i mean in this case you could be dealing with one new election in the senate there could be a death which would then totally change the the, the entire direction of the country in some ways it the, the seesaw, given how divided and how polarized we are and how far the right and the far left have moved from each other, it really is a concerning um, – it's a concerning development, the idea that the, 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 that the pendulum would swing that far at, at the change of one or two seats in the Senate. Now, David, what do you see happening? Are they going to succeed? Are they really going to push this through? Well, I'll say two things. First, just to go back to your other point, gridlock is something people don't like to hear, but it is the organic state of a divided nation in Washington. That's why you have state governments. You don't need the federal government constantly taking care of everything. Um, but we've been sort of uh, programmed to believe that the more bills we pass, the more things we're doing, et cetera. And it's just an unhealthy way to, I think, look at American governance. What will happen, I'm not sure. You see, part of this, it, it makes me, I, I wonder, because what bill exactly are they talking about like what bill to to undo the filibuster? You're going to need 51 people to do it. 51 senators. Um, are red state Democratic senators going to break the filibuster for HR one? I'm not even sure they have the support for that. Or, or over a gun control bill, I'm not sure they have the support for that. A tax hike? Well, a tax hike they can just do with reconciliation. It's a budgetary item. They don't need to break the filibuster. So I wonder what bill exactly they're talking about. And what made me sort of laugh, I mean, it's sort of sad, but is that they were complaining how they can't get anything done a week after passing a $2 trillion bill that it was filled with Democratic goodies. I mean, what are they even talking about? I don't get it. But this is all just a contrived way to, to have a showdown, basically. I'm just not sure where that showdown will happen right now. 
That's a point that, that Senator McConnell made in his speech this morning as well, is that this is a particularly bad time to say that the Senate can't get anything done when, especially in response to COVID, there have been a number of things that have been done in a in a very bipartisan way. And the argument in support of eliminating the filibuster is that nothing is bipartisan when actually recent history is, is better than older history, that bipartisan things can get done when there is urgency and when there's an agreement about what the problem is, which is ideally what we'd like to see people working together on, even if uh, I have personally uh, reservations about some of the things that they found agreement on. Now, in order to get um, those 51 to, uh, to get rid of the filibuster, they have to keep all the Democrats together, and then you've got to get, you've got to get Kamala Harris as well. Which Democrats are most likely to break with their caucus, if anyone, when it comes to overturning the filibuster? Well, I think Manchin in West Virginia and Cinema in uh, Arizona are the two who have already expressed, I believe both of them have said they won't do it. Now, if we're going to rely on the principles of senators, it's a tough thing to ask someone to do. So I'm not will- willing to say we're, you know, the filibuster is safe. Um, but it seems unlikely to me that Manchin would break the filibuster or get rid of the filibuster to pass a gun control bill in West Virginia, where Trump won, I don't know what, 70 percent of the vote, right. um, where people probably have a lot of guns. So I wonder about how that works out. Um I think a lot of this is setting the table for some future showdown, which they don't know what it will be, but it will happen. That's probably what's going on. Well, David Arsani, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for your, your tracking this somewhat obscure but really actually very important issue, and thank you for your time today. Friends, that's what we got for today. Keep this in mind. The filibuster, it's the, the devil is in the details in so much government. And this matters to what happens in the rest of our lives. Stay tuned. Stay in prayer. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.